Hello, I'm Amanda Moore. I'm the director of the Clearinghouse Community. Welcome to the Advocacy Exchange for June 2018. Both the Advocacy Exchange and the Clearinghouse Community are brought to you by the Sergeant Shriver National Center on Poverty Law, a national leader in advancing justice and opportunity. I have with me two guests today. I'm very excited to talk with them about language access. Um, Let me introduce them in turn. First is Terry Ramos. Uh, Terry is an attorney at Ramos Law, LLC, and she's formerly of the Massachusetts Law Reform Institute. And she's joining us today from Boston. Hi, Hi, Terry. And second, we have Joanne Lee. Joanne is special counsel at the Legal Aid Foundation of Los Angeles, and she's joining us today from LA. Hi, Joanne. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm glad you're here. Our focus on the Clearinghouse community this month is language access. And both Terry and Joanne have written pieces that have been published on the Clearinghouse in the past month. Terry's Clearinghouse article is called, When Access to Language Means Access to Justice, How to Advocate Effectively on Behalf of Limited English Proficient Persons. And Joanne's advocacy story is called, Finding the Path to Language Justice in the California Courts. Both of those pieces can be found on the Clearinghouse community at povertylaw.org clearinghouse. We're going to talk about the substance of those pieces and about enforcing language access rights. All right, let's get started talking about enforcing language access rights. Terry, I want to start with you. Just briefly, can you tell us what it is that we're talking about when we talk about language access? So when we talk about language access, the two most common areas are um, interpretation. So when a person walks into an office that they're able to Um, receive feedback in their own language of something that is spoken, and translation, which is when they have a written document um, that whatever is written has been transferred from the language of origin, which in the U.S. tends to be English, to their own language. Um, and um, that's that's pretty much the two the two most important. That's pretty much it. We either read documents or or we talk. Um, and that's usually when we talk about language access, we can get more into detail later, but um, that's pretty much it. That's great. That's a, yeah. a good intro for us to make sure we, yeah. we know what, what it is we're here to talk about. We have some people who have let us know that they are uh, tuned in. We have Jennifer in Arkansas. We have Reem in, a- in Ohio and Lee in Maryland and Juan in Albuquerque. So thank you all for um, joining us and for saying hello. Terry, I want to stick with you. Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is the main source of language access rights. How how exactly does it provide for language access rights and whom does it cover? So so I always, when I talk about Title VI, I always tell people to refer back to their middle school um, unit on uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So what we're really talking about is Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And the Civil Rights Act says that um, you um, you cannot be discriminated against due to your um, your race or your national origin. So the Supreme Court established in 1974 that a person's language is the closest proxy that they have to their national origin. So I always tell folks that when they hear me speak, um, they notice a slight accent, and it tells them that I probably wasn't, you know. Uh, born in Boston, or my parents didn't come in the Mayflower. I am from Puerto Rico, um, and that's true even in, in within a language. If you think about accents within the United States, so 
Bottom line is um, national origin discrimination is language access discrimination. Um, it's, it's, um, it's, I'm getting to, for some reason, I'm getting a little bit of problem in the feedback, just so you know, in the computer screen. Um, but basically, um, when we talk about language access discrimination, it goes back to the Civil Rights Act. It's as basic as that. Thank you, Terry. Um, yes, I think we've got that worked out now. We just have one, yes. Joanne. We had two for a minute. It went a little crazy for a moment. <laughs> I got cut off for some reason, but I think I'm back in. Okay. Yes, you're here to be. I'm glad. Um, yes, Terry, I should. We definitely all have accents from different parts of the country, as someone from Kentucky originally. Um, I can attest to that. Yeah. So, uh, Terry, your article also discusses other sources of language access rights, and which brings us to a question that we had come in before the broadcast that came in from Denise in San Jose. Um, she says, I would love to hear your thoughts on language access issues with administrative agencies like the Social Security Administration. She says, although SSA is quick to translate documents to Spanish, they've essentially shrugged their shoulders when we advocate for language access in other languages like Chinese Mandarin or simplified Chinese. Instead, we've seen SSA use subpar in-person employee interpretation rather than utilizing a neutral interpreter. Our clients are left with trying to find a family member or friend to interpret notices from SSA. So what are other sources, Terry, of language access rights and, and do those come into play if we're talking about um, questions like Denise has with okay. the Social Security so, Administration? Yeah, so the basic, like we said, the basic um, right comes from the Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. Um, after uh, Title VI, all federal agencies uh, or some federal agencies uh, created some um, guidance related to language access, but it was not until Bill Clinton in the year 2000 that the, the executive order 13166, where he um, detailed and he directed all federal agencies to create language access plans. And I always tell folks to, um, there is a fabulous one-stop shop for language access in the federal government is www.lep.gov. And if you go there, you can find um, all of the federal register notices. You can find the original executive order, but you can also find all of the federal register notices for each of the federal agencies um, when they're first created and where they have been amended. So that executive order directed um, federal agencies to create plans uh, so their recipients would know um, how language access needed to be provided. Um, what's interesting is that um, as part of that federal, um, that, as part of that executive order, the original idea was that it was intended so that the recipients of the federal funds would have to comply with language access, but in, in a sense, um, not the federal agency itself, it's for the recipients. So what has happened is, as a result, that there is a little bit of a gray area where a lot of the federal agencies in their own manuals have um, guidance in terms of how to handle interpretation or specific documents, but it doesn't have um, the same, it doesn't come from the same executive order. And I think um, Joanne can talk a little bit about it and how it works in the courts, because there's a little bit of that with the federal courts as well versus the state courts being federal government versus recipient right. of federal funds. Um, so that's in terms of the federal agencies. And as a result, for example, in Social Security, if you look at the um, at their own um, manual, it does detail 
what kind of language access they're willing to provide, but it's not the same standard as what would be required under the executive order. Now, what I always tell folks is that um, you need to look at um, a lot of federal programs and a lot of federal laws on their own do provide that uh, support for language access support. So for example, the Department of Education has traditionally been extremely strong in creating their own laws um, and regulations that require all schools to and state education agencies to provide language access. You know, um, HUD has um, you know has the Fair Housing Act that includes specific um, specific areas of language access. So those are other areas that um, folks don't always think about immediately when it comes to language access. But I always say that you have to tie whatever language access issue to ha you have to the substantive area of law that you're seeking to cover. And that's really important because what you'll find is that um, the executive order obviously doesn't really have any clause. You cannot, um, you don't have a private right of action for language access unless you can prove intentional discrimination. And we have found that that can be hard to prove. So it's very often easier to find a private right of action for language access in other statutes rather than going back to Title VI or to the executive order. And Joan, I don't know if you wanna add anything to that. Can, can you hear me? I'm getting a little bit of feedback, but yes, okay. Hear you. Hear you. Okay, great. Um, so yeah, I think I think as Terry stated, the the problem with Title VI in general was that it was created um, specifically for recipients of federal funding, but the federal agencies themselves they're not considered recipients. They're actually conducting the activities. So there's this distinction between federally funded versus federally conducted. And I think what the executive order was trying to do was to bring the federally conducted activities under the spirit of Title VI. So the executive order said all of the federal agencies, they need to, to develop written plans for all of their recipients, but also for themselves. Um, but as Terry said, the issue is enforcement. And so it doesn't have the same teeth that Title VI does, um, even though Title VI enforcement powers are also not as strong as we like them to be. Um, so you have agencies like Social Security, which actually in their uh, written policies, they are um, they do state that they have a duty to provide language access, um, at least interpretation, oral services, free of charge to those who are seeking their um, services and benefits. And then you have other agencies, such as the Department of Homeland Security, which does not um, believe they have the same mandate and they actually require applicants to bring their own interpreters, which has been, which we believe is not really following the, what the executive order is um, telling the federal agencies to do. And then you have the same issue with the courts where state courts are recipients of federal funding, so they fall under Title VI, whereas the federal courts are actually conducting the activities, so they are not following necessarily the same standards as they are imposing on the state courts. Um, in a state like California, we also have our own version of Title VI, which is found at Government Code 11135. Um, and many states may have similar provisions that, that, that may in fact be stronger than Title VI. Um, our Government Code 11135 um, prohibits discrimination um, specifically on the basis of national origin, which covers language access, but also something that they call ethnic identification, which includes um, linguistic characteristics in the regs. So um, that also contains a private right of action, which we can actually use on the basis of disparate impact as well as intentional discrimination. So 
there may be some additional tools in your uh, in your state and state laws as well. Thank you, both of you. Um, Joanne, I'll stay with you. And you mentioned state law and state courts, and that is what your advocacy story focuses on. So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, your advocacy story, it details a long running campaign that you worked on to enforce language access rights in the California court system. Can you tell us what the situation was there? Sure. So historically in California, uh, interpreters were only provided in court proceedings in criminal matters that's found under the California Constitution. Um, and later um, there, there was a statute added that allowed for interpreters in certain mandated cases, such as domestic violence restraining order cases, but it was extremely limited. Um, and uh, we did a lot of advocacy around getting our clients to get interpreters, even in family law cases, housing cases, other civil cases. Um, and at times the court would provide them, but in general, they uh, would you know, state that there's no right to an interpreter in civil cases. Um, and the basis of that was a 1978 California Supreme Court case um, called Hara v. Municipal Court, which basically held that there was no right to an interpreter in a civil case. It was an individual who's being sued, um, a Spanish-speaking litigant who was being sued um, for property damages. And um, he basically asked the court for an interpreter and the judge um, ruled that, you know, he was Spanish speaking, he had an attorney, he had lots of resources in the community, friends, family, you know, so many places that he could find language assistance. So the court was not required to provide it in this instance. Um, and that went all the way up to the Supreme Court of California and that was the ruling. So that ruling kind of haunted us for decades after that, um, you know, we we would ask for interpreters. We would say, you know, there's no way this person can access the courts. You know, voice their concerns. You know, assert their rights to custody, things like that. Um, they are at risk of losing homes. You know, so uh, at, at times the judges would would appoint them, and many of them were very sympathetic. Um, but ultimately, uh, because of this case, um, there was no, you know no blanket rule that these individuals would get interpreters and those who didn't have us to advocate for them unfortunately oftentimes went without their day in court um, they lost a lot of you know rights fundamental rights um, and so especially with the budget cuts hitting the courts in 2008 we saw less fewer and fewer interpreters provided and so we realized we had to do something more systematically to address the issue right and that's right, what and I Sure, we all sure want to hear that. So, so what did you change the system? So we did, we started off by trying to file something in the courts. Um, we started off with using sort of the fee waiver process um, and, and trying to say that, you know, these litigants were low income, they can't afford an interpreter. We filed a writ in the Court of Appeals to try to get some of our clients appointed interpreters. And we ran up against HARA, that was the issue. And we realized we would have to, litigate these cases all the way back up to the Supreme Court of California in order to, you know, sort of dismantle what had been done by the Supreme Court case. Um, so we decided to sort of go a different route. Um, we filed an administrative complaint with the Department of Justice with the Federal Coordination and Compliance Section, which was charged with enforcing Title VI um, in these types of cases. So we filed that back in 2010. Um, and they opened a federal investigation, um, the Department of Justice in Washington, D.C., as well as they partnered up with a local um, U.S. Attorney's Office, um, Assistant U.S. Attorney in L.A. to start the investigation. And it was um, 
started against both the Los Angeles Superior Court and then the Judicial Council of California. So it was statewide as well. Um, and it was a long road of, you know, many meetings and um, the investigation, the Department of Justice attorneys were great in terms of, you know, co coordinating with the courts and asking for information. Um, they came out with a letter of recommendation stating that back in, in 2013, stating that um, it, it appeared that they were not in compliance with Title VI, and these were some recommendations that they could um, enter into to um, engage in voluntary compliance efforts. Um, and so that is what happened. At the same time, the Supreme Court of California also um, had a new campaign um, called 3D Access, um, which included language access. So there was there was sort of the spirit within the, the Judicial Council as well that they wanted to um, improve language access in the courts. And what ultimately happened was um, it was a very like complex coordinated effort, but eventually there was a, a language access plan created um, for all of the 58 counties in California to follow. Um, and Los Angeles County, um, I'm proud to say, sort of took the lead in this. Um, and currently they do provide interpreters in all proceedings um, for, you know, for all matters. And it goes beyond the courtroom. Um, it also includes, um, you know, when somebody goes to the counter and asks questions, um, it goes to programs that the court has ordered, like ev evaluations for child custody, mediation. Um, and so, of course, there are many bumps in the road um, that we've encountered in terms of um, implementation and enforcement. But I believe that we're you know, on the right track. Excellent. Thank you for sharing that, Joanne. And I want to remind our viewers that we want to hear from you. If you have questions for Terry and Joanne, please uh, share those. I've heard from a few more people, Natalie in Lexington, Kentucky, Christy in Seattle, and Jennifer in Indiana. Thank you all for tuning in. Um, and do let us know your questions. You've got uh, we, between the two of you, we have a wealth of expertise on enforcing language access rights. So I want to talk about some of the specific tips uh, for advocates who might be taking on a language access matter. Terry, your article contains some very practical advice about working with limited English proficient clients. Can you pick a couple of those tips and share them with us? Sure. So um, in the article I talked about, um, I, I limited it to interpreters. So as I mentioned, um, there's two ways that there can be language access. It's either written, where you receive a notice, um, or um, you have to fill out an application somewhere. Um, you have to be able to understand what it says uh, in order to have access to the program. And then there's the oral one. So I'll start with the interpretation. Um, of, I gave a list of, of tips. And I think the most important one to, um, for advocates uh, and attorneys is to, um, to be in control. So when you're working with an interpreter and you're working with a limited English proficient um, client, um, you have to really prepare and be in control and understand how to guide that conversation because it's a little bit more complicated than when you're just one-to-one -one with a client. So, um, and what I mean to be in control is one, you want to, um, you want to uh, know who the interpreter is and you want to know, um, you want them to understand the kind of work that they're doing. So potentially give them materials in advance if possible, or tell them the matter that you're gonna speak to. Um, you wanna also prepare your client as much as possible, explain to them through the interpreter or through a language line that, um, that you are the attorney and that you want them to speak directly to you. 
and you want to control the the flow of information so you want to make sure that um the client understands that they're they're having a conversation with you and that the interpreter next to you is a, it's a help it's an aid but it's not the person to be given questions or to be talking back to um, and I think the other er issue that's really important is that we don't often understand um, whether the interpreter is the appropriate interpreter for that situation. And that's really common where we call someone in and then the, the conversation doesn't go well and you don't realize that there can be a geographic difference in the language or that um, your client may be of one sex and the interpreter of another. And there might be cultural differences that kind of um, uh, make your client uncomfortable and not willing to speak freely. So um, so what I mean by being in control is understand everything that's happening around you and try to look as many of the factors as possible to make sure that the conversation goes well. And also, if it's not going well, for you to notice it, to be... Um, uh, to be um, aware enough that if you see that your client is not answering questions or is answering with just one syllable or the time or he or she appears uncomfortable to be assertive enough to stop the conversation and maybe um, find another way to speak to your client that's not that interpreter and find out if the interpreter is just not the right quality or doesn't have the right qualifications or is making your client uncomfortable in any way. So I think that's really important. In terms of the translation, if I can say very briefly, um, it's really important for advocates um, to, um, to understand that um, very often uh, translated documents leave much to be desired. Um, uh, there is a, an impression that Google Translate is an appropriate method of translation. And um, I actually usually um, uh, show a... Um, uh, a short clip from uh, from Jimmy Fallon's Google Translate songs to show people just how wrong it can go uh, in a very funny but poignant way. So um, it's really important that if you receive um, something um, crucial like a settlement or a contract or something that's going to have um, real repercussions, that if possible, and you get it from another part that uh, from the other, you know, from the other attorneys, that it's really important that you double check that the translation is appropriate. So, and that there are no uh, concerns that that what the English document says is truly what the translated document says. And I'll give you one example. I have received um, once a document where it talked about accommodations for a child with disability and they used the term hotel accommodations instead. Um, and when they talked about the team processes in the IEP team process, they talked about a football team. So, um, so sometimes it is really important if you don't speak the language and you're not able to uh, read that document to have someone that you trust make sure that the document is conveys the appropriate information and it's properly translated. Thank you, Terry. Those are excellent tips. And, and I will remind our um, listeners and viewers that uh, Terry's article contains more than just that, some really yeah. practical um practical advice from experience. We had a question come in from Michelle in Baltimore. Um, and this is a question that uh, Joanne, I think your story probably prompted because it made me think of something similar. She asks, uh, can you talk about strategies with filing Title VI discrimination with agencies like the DOJ and HHS Office for Civil Rights? 
in the current administration? And what risks, if any, should we counsel immigrant clients about in considering whether to file complaints? Can people file anonymous complaints? Joanne, I think I'll start with you since you were sure. talking about the Title VI complaint process. You know, it's interesting because, um, you know, when the administration changed, we were curious about our investigation was still ongoing and actually continues um, today. So um, I, I was curious as to whether the Federal Coordination and Compliance Section, which is the section within the DOJ that's charged with investigating, um, if anything would change. Um, and as far as I know, and in, in my informal conversations with them, um, you know, they continue to investigate the complaints that they've received. Um, you know, they, you know, they, they've still come to LA, they've met with the courts, they've met with us. Um, they encourage us to file the complaints um, to the extent that we have, you know, a, a basis for them. Um, I can't speak for the other agencies like HHS and HUD. Um, what's going on there, but I, I do believe that the Federal Coordination and Compliance Section continues to um, work their investigations. Um, I, I believe that you can file complaints anonymously or without a named complainant. Um, I would have to double check um, the website to make sure, but um, if you go to the DOJ website on filing complaints, um, it should indicate that, but I, I do believe that that's possible and I can follow up um, and, and try to let you know. Um, I, I do have some concerns about um, pushing the executive order um, because we were doing that with certain federal agencies and, you know, we, we did back off a little bit because we were not sure, you know, executive orders can come and go. Um, so that is one tale of caution. I mean, I think if you have a really egregious case and you want to address it, then, you know, that's something that you'll have to strategize internally and I'm happy to talk to folks about that as well. Um, but I, I think that, you know, in this in this climate, in this time, you know, there are other considerations. Um, and, you know, it's more than, it's, it's more important than ever that language access be enforced, um, but how we do it, I think we have to think about carefully. Thank um, you. Can, can, I add, can I add to that? So um, I'll give you my East Coast experience since she, um, you know, we have both coasts. So um, I uh, I agree with Joanne that when we first started, everybody tried to just stay away from um, DOJ, not knowing what was going to happen. And um, given that the uh, climate in Washington and everything that came out was so negative, what um, I had two uh, pending complaints with DOJ, and um, the staff there has continued to work on them with the same. Um, with the same speed, intensity, and commitment as they did before. I think that they're committed to their job and there hasn't been any difference. However, um, in Massachusetts, I think very often what the office decides to do very often may depend on the U.S. attorney that has been named to that region or that office. Um, we were very lucky that we didn't have a U.S. attorney named in a region for quite some time. And at that time, their staff continued doing the work just in case there was something different. Um, so far, there hasn't been. What, what I have heard, again, is um, you may want to learn a little bit about your office, your regional office, and what they're doing, since a lot of it is sent to the regional office. The feedback I have received um, from a lot of folks has been, I, I have a pending... Um, complaint um, that we've been working on to file related to uh, language access and education, and it's uh, with refugee and immigrants. And the one thing that I have been um, 
told to be very, very careful about. It's more about the uh, status of the folks that um, are involved. So um, we have shied away from using anyone who doesn't have a green card or some form of pretty secure status because we're worried about um, about if any of those folks are uncovered and you know what it could mean for them. So um, from my understanding, in the case of the work that I do, they um, I work rather exclusively right now with education clients. And as such, even when they file an anonymous complaint, um, sometimes the name has to be given because they have to be able to look at the file. So there is always a risk that even if they don't uncover the name to the education agency, that DOJ themselves will know about the child and the family because we have to provide examples of the egregious conduct. So in that case, again, because it is specific to education and the way it works, we have been really cautious. In fact, um, everything that we've done has been someone who is either, um, you know, citizen or close to, or you know, at least a very stable green card holder. And I would advise to try to um, to be as cautious as well in other parts of the country. Thank you. We are really at the end of our time, but we had a question come in from Christy that I, I want to get to. So um, Joanne, it's for you. So just keep in mind, it's kind of a big question, but try to summarize as much as you can. And um, maybe you and Christy could follow up later. But she says, uh, Joanne, great work with the courts and getting the statewide plan. Can you talk for a minute about the work you did on implementation and getting institutional buy-in to the process? So if you have any um, kind sure. of quick tips from that. Well, actually, as part of the plan, there was an implementation task force that was created, which actually has been great because it's a mix of judges, interpreters, uh, legal services advocates, you know, just across the board, um, court administrators. And the court itself, the, the staff of the Judicial Council has been really involved in that process. So I think we're fortunate in that because they've done a lot of the drafting and the follow up. And then, you know, we as a committee meet regularly um, to make sure that the implementation is getting done. Now, you know, we have 58 counties in California. So I have to say we do have some counties that still on their website say you have to bring your own interpreter. So we have a lot of work to be, there's a lot of work to be done. But I think this concept of this sort of um, this task force that's made up of, you know, a lot of different individuals with different backgrounds, including the courts and the court staff. Um, I think is is crucial to that process, and I know many states have engaged in that, and I think it's a good model to follow for implementation. Uh, we have one more quick question come in. This came from Reem. Um, is this listserv open for us to join? And I'm not sure. I didn't catch which one of you mentioned a listserv. Did one um, of you mention it? There is a National Language Access Advocates Network listserv that is, is quite useful. We also have a similar one in California. Um, but if you reach out to me, um, we have like a little questionnaire. Um, and it's it's in large part for advocates um, and not for government employees or, or government related employees. Um, but it's, you know, we have we have a process that we go through, but um, for legal aid advocates, um, nonprofit organizations, and then folks like Terry, who used to be with a nonprofit, but it's now in private practice, are also on the listserv. So if you reach out to me, I can try to get folks on there. Great. Thank you, Joanne. And if there's a, um, I'll get with you if there's a link or anything people can go okay. to for a form. We could put that in the follow-up email. So I want to thank um, everyone who's tuned in. Thank you, Michelle and Christy, for your questions. Um, and of course, thank you, Joanne and Terry, for being here today.
Thank you for having me. Of Thank course. You. And um, I want to remind our viewers that um, they can read Terry's article, When Access to Language Means Access to Justice, How to Advocate Effectively on Behalf of Limited English Proficient Persons at PovertyLaw.org slash Clearinghouse, and also Joanne's advocacy story, Finding the Path to Language Justice in the California Courts, that's also at PovertyLaw.org slash Clearinghouse. I invite you to join the Shriver Center's mailing list um, for these events with the Clearinghouse community. If you enjoyed um, this topic, this conversation, stay connected to us at connect.povertylaw.org slash clearinghouse. Um, I'll also remind you that Advocacy Exchange is available as a podcast. It's uh, now available on Google Play as well as Apple Podcasts. And finally, I'll invite you to join us for next month's Advocacy Exchange. We're going to turn our attention to how public interest legal organizations can implement race equity in their own programs. And we'll talk about something called the diversity bonus. We'll have details about that in the follow-up email that you will receive next week. We hope that you'll join us next month. And until then, remember that you're not alone out there. Thank you. Thank you.